So good afternoon and welcome uh, to this today's Sunday talk coming to you from Amravati Monastery. My name is Ajahn Damanando and I will be offering or trying to offer some reflections around the topic of the faculties of forgettery and remindfulness. So I have to say that this is not a title I myself invented, uh, but I have offered to talk to it. Um, and what is noticeable about this title is that neither of these words is terribly common. Neither forgettery nor remindfulness is something that people use very much. Thinking about forgettery first, well, it's obviously something to do with memory, something where you put things and forget them, a forgettery. And in fact, I have found the word in, in one or two dictionaries. Most dictionaries don't have it. It's something we sometimes use around the monastery, the word forgettery, but it does have uh, some kind of colloquial usage outside. So some people use this word apparently. So that's forgettery, and the other word is remindfulness. So I take remindfulness to be really a play on the word mindfulness, uh, something we use all the time here, mindfulness. And remindfulness is just really a play on that word. So the themes I'll be trying to explore will be around memory and mindfulness and seeing possibly towards the end of this whether there might be some connections that, that, that uh, tie those two together. But um, the origin of the word mindfulness is this word in Pali, sati, sati. And sati itself stems from a Sanskrit word, smrti, and that has a root in a word smara, which means something like reminiscence, recollection, uh, bringing to mind, thinking on something, or memory. But the word smrti in Sanskrit can also mean uh, attention or mindfulness, uh, or mindfulness of uh, all physical and mental activities. So this slight ambiguity around the word sati, which we have, because sometimes in, in, in the texts, in the scriptures, sometimes sati is translated as memory. Mostly it's translated as mindfulness. So this ambiguity goes back to the very root of the word itself. So memory for us, um, for human beings, is very important. In, in English, we, we have a number of phrases or expressions sometimes songs, sometimes just the things that we say, which tend to indicate that how important it is. For example, um, we talk about a trip down memory lane. We talk about memories are made of this. We say some song was, thank you for the memory. We also say things like, don't forget to remind me, and don't remind me. Sometimes we say things like, it's on the tip of my tongue, meaning that I can almost remember it, but not quite. And these phrases help to indicate to us the, the importance that we give to memory, how much of a, a part it plays in our lives. So why is memory so important to us? I think firstly, because if we try, if we come across something new, a new problem or a new situation, um, we need to marshal facts and uh, details. And if we can marshal them and get them to some kind of order and compare and contrast, then we can solve the problem. 
But if we lack the memory to be able to bring those facts and details to mind, then we're stuck. And it's very hard to, to get hold of a problem and really get the solution to it. So that's the first thing, problem solving. But a second aspect is uh, the, the coherence or continuity of life. And the fact is that um, we need some kind of memory of the past to make sense of the present. And constantly new events are happening, changes are going on. And um, we try and we struggle to make sense of those changes. We struggle to put them into perspective. And with, with some kind of memory, we can perhaps offer a, a, a context or a perspective within which something is happening. So a, a really current example would be COVID-19. So this is pandemic is affecting everybody all around the world. And it is quite overwhelming. It does cause us a lot of anxiety and fear. And so how do we make sense of that? We reach for a context or a perspective from which to view it. And two, two such contexts come up to my mind. One is uh, the kinds of, of disease like uh, smallpox and measles. Back in the 18th century, members of the royal family were dying of smallpox or of measles. There was no cure for those diseases at the time. What the physicians would do would just bleed you, and that was supposed to cure you. So it did nothing whatsoever, and people were dying of those diseases. Now, as time went on, so the medical field discovered cures or at least things that could help prevent the disease, and maybe contain the disease. So we might well wish that COVID-19 falls into that kind of category and that sooner or later something comes along that contains or cures the disease. But there is another context within which it might fall. It might be similar to the bubonic plague. Now the bubonic plague in England began in the 1300s with the Black Death, a very famous um, time. But it actually carried on for another 400 years. It would reappear in towns or certain districts and flare up and then die down again and flare up and die down again right through to the 1700s. So, for example, if you follow the story of the royal court, the king would move away from a town or city where the plague was, was flaring up to somewhere where, which was plague-free. Anyway, this is the kind of thing I mean. It's a context within which to view a current occurrence or, or problem that's arisen in our lives. Now, why is it that we fear losing our memory, I think first of all, um, first of all because memory is what gives us a sense of identity. So if I know what I've done in the past, I have some kind of idea of the kind of person I am. I am, if you like, my past. That's how I make sense of it. If I have certain skills, and I can remember those skills, and I can be of use to the people around me or the community I'm living in. So this is all very helpful. And if the memory goes, then of course we feel diminished as a person. And the, the, the other problem is that it's very inconvenient. Even on a sort of everyday small level, 
if we forget a word or a, a name or a detail that we need to remember, um, something that is crucial perhaps to speak about in a meeting, then of course it's very inconvenient. We have to go and look it up. Or for example, if we lose or forget, sorry, our, our spectacles or our keys or a pen or some other thing that we take with us or want to take with us and we have to go back and collect it, it's very inconvenient. So this is this inconvenience means we become less efficient as a person. And finally, it can be very embarrassing or we feel embarrassed if we can't remember something that's important to us or important to somebody else, perhaps their name or perhaps the fact that we met them before. And we always fear that people might look down on us or criticize us or uh, have some uh, negative feeling if, if we can't remember. So these are reasons why it is memory is so important to, to us. Now this is the word forgettery suggests the loss of memory. So I just want to explore briefly different kinds of memory loss. Uh, not for not too long I hope. But uh, the first kind of memory loss that strikes me is the the most common of the lot, which I think is to do with with aging, so it's age-related memory loss. And <clears throat> there appears to be, at the root cause of this, there appears to be physiological changes to the brain, uh, what they call neural engrams or memory traces. Uh, those become, uh, they, they start to lose hold on the brain or to, to fade away. Um, <clears throat> and maybe there's some kind of fading or sorry failure of the central nervous system so the, the nervous system is changing and this leads to some kind of memory loss particularly in people who are quite old and the typical uh, example is that they they can remember way back in their childhood and in their youth but it's the most recent memories that they have a problem recalling and um, this was indeed was the case or has been the case with my parents so, for example, my father, who died a few years ago, um, he, he could remember pretty well his, his youth and uh, young manhood. And he was actually interviewed uh, by somebody who came from an RAF association to record his memories, because my father was in the Second World War, he was in the RAF. So talking about his time in the RAF, my father could remember not just the names of the aeroplanes, he could remember details about how to start the engines. On certain aeroplanes, the engines were very difficult to start. You had to sort of turn the propeller, something like that, to help you get the engine going. And he was talking about this and the difficulties with certain aeroplanes. <clears throat> and very fluently, as though it was yesterday. And then <clears throat> another time I, I was with him and I said, I'd seen a film on the internet. It was a black and white film from the, from the war years, 1941. So I said, have you seen this film called The First of the Few? He said, yes, I've seen it. Again, it was just like it was yesterday. And he could remember all the details of the film. Now he was in a care home and he was basically uh, lying in the bed most of the time. But at the end of the bed, there was a cupboard and on the wall of the cupboard, there was a, a picture, a photograph of two young children. So he, one day he turned to me and he said, uh, who are those children? Who are those children? So I said, well, John, they're your great-grandchildren, uh, Jacob and Freya. 
So I'm sure that my niece had taken her children to meet him, and also that my sister would have stuck that picture up on the cupboard. But he had no idea who those children were. I've also, I remember the story that someone told me about his father. He said his father would go to the same video every day, put it on the video recorder and watch it, and the same level of laughter and enjoyment would come from the father watching the, watching the video. He just didn't realize or remember that he'd watched that video the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that. So as uh, this friend said, his father was very cheap to entertain, not expensive at all. So this is age-related memory loss, something we're quite familiar with. Then, for even for younger people, there are certain reasons or causes, or shall we say hypotheses, about why they forget in certain situations. So one of the reasons we forget or can't remember uh, is non-activation. If we have things that we've tried to take in, into our memory, but we don't recall them very often, if we just let them lie fallow for a long period of time, then those things will fade from the memory. They haven't been activated. On the other hand, if we recall things every day or every other day, practice, for example, in a monastery like this, we practice chanting. So if we want to remember a chant, the best thing to do is to keep practicing it every day or on a regular basis. If we let the chant just lie fallow, then we'll tend to forget it. It's rather like keeping a wall going. You have to keep patching up a wall so you can keep patching up these memories by recalling them. So that's the first thing, activation or non-activation of a memory. And the second thing uh, is what psychologists call interference. So if we have um, a body of facts or memories in the mind and we start introducing new facts that we have to remember, sometimes those new facts push out the old ones. So they interfere with the old ones. But equally, the other way, it can work the other way. So old facts lodged in the memory can um, prevent new facts from coming in. So we can try desperately to learn something new, but it never, it just doesn't come in properly and, and stick in the memory. So that's interference. And then the third issue is to do with context. So when we remember things, when we take things in, there's usually a context. Sometimes it's a physical context, sometimes it's a mental context, but we remember things within a certain context. So for example, if you go to a foreign city, you walk around the city, you, you learn where the streets are, where the different places are, and you how to go from A to B and then somewhere else. So while you're in that city, the memory is fresh. But when you leave the city, you go back to your normal country or place of residence, then th those memories can fade very quickly because you, you're not there, you're not in the context. And what I've heard is that for very young children learning in the primary school, uh, they learn something in the classroom with a particular teacher. And if the following day or the next few days, if they're in the same classroom with the same teacher, the memories come back, not a problem. But if they have to change classroom or change teacher, that's when the context changes and the memories start to falter or even they forget altogether. And of course, if it's a new classroom and a new teacher, <laughs> they have a problem. And finally, for some adults, um, I'm thinking here about people who are alcoholic. Uh, apparently, when an alcoholic, let's say an alcoholic man comes home, he's hiding 
bottles of booze in various places. He remembers exactly where he, he hid them. But by the time he's sober again, he can't remember where he put those bottles of alcohol. And yet if he drinks again and becomes drunk, then he can remember immediately. So it's a question of context within which one can remember. So those are what you might call fairly normal or just everyday kinds of forgetting. But there are, of course, other kinds of forgetting to do with pathological reasons. So if we get into a situation where we get a bang on the head, we may well, even if we're still conscious, we may suffer some kind of memory problems, memory defects. And the same is true of certain diseases like encephalitis of the brain. Uh, if you get encephalitis, then you may experience some memory problems from that. Even more severe is if we get into some kind of trauma situation where we're knocked unconscious. So somebody knocked unconscious, gradually they come to, they're dazed and confused, and they can't take in new memories. So from that period right through to when they're fully recovered, it may be the case that they can't remember anything that happened. And apparently there are even cases of footballers who've been in the Malay. They haven't been knocked out, but somehow they're in a slightly different state where they can't take in memories. Nevertheless, they can play, they run around, they score goals. And afterwards they say, I don't remember any of that. So it's a quite different ways that memory can be lost. There is something called transient global amnesia. Now apparently this is when there's a sudden and abrupt loss of memory. And it can last for a few seconds, it can last for minutes or even for an hour or two. And this is to do with uh, blood not being able to get into certain parts of the brain, they reckon. And then there is also ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. When people undergo ECT, it's highly likely they will suffer some memory loss from that. Finally, we get to the diseases, Alzheimer's, Down's syndrome. These kinds of diseases have quite a severe impact on the memory. So as we can see, there are many, many reasons, uh, organic reasons, why memory can be lost. But there's also the, what I would call the more psychological reasons or psychogenic reasons. This is not, not to do with any apparent damage to the brain or any uh, accident, but it's more to do with our emotional life. So in the 19th century, uh, psychiatrists discovered, or psychologists discovered what they called hysterical amnesia. That somebody hasn't had a, any damage to the mind or to the brain, and yet They've, there's a whole chunk of life that they've somehow forgotten or, or not able to recall. And various experiments were carried out and they began to find that with hypnosis, this problem of hysterical amnesia could be addressed. And of course, later on in the following century, there was Freud. He came up with the term repression and he proposed psychotherapy and word association as one way to help to cure this problem. So what happens with repression is that there's been some acute emotional problem or conflict, some stress. And this deep sense of anxiety that arises is connected with perhaps pretty powerful emotions, fear, guilt, shame, disgust, uh, or feeling of self inadequacy, things like that, it's a sense of inferiority. 
and somehow the mind just starts to wall off these memories. He just doesn't want to know about it. And the person can't, genuinely cannot remember. So they might be questioned by someone, you know, uh, and they still can't remember. They might try themselves to remember this period of time, but nothing works. They cannot remember. And that is the difference between repression on the one hand and moderate forgetting on the other. We all experience moderate forgetting. Uh, something we don't really want to remember. And the way we try to put it off is by, first of all, we can distract ourselves, you know, get entertainment or reading or going somewhere, doing something, anything but think about this, or avoidance. We can avoid the situation or the topic or the people that might bring up this memory. Nevertheless, with moderate forgetting, uh, ultimately, if you are questioned by someone, you will recall uh, the memory, or you yourself will bring up the memory. So that's the difference between that and repression. Repression, people can't remember. And this can take some very extreme forms. So um, the way repression works, you wall off that memory, uh, and, and yet the memory itself is trying to break through. So it can come through in a disguised form, a different form, into your life. Or maybe it comes through uh, at the expense of conscious awareness. So there are cases where people uh, who get into sleepwalking are actually reenacting something they don't want to remember. And of course the classic example from uh, literature is Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth has been involved in a murder. And she's sleepwalking and she's washing her hands repeatedly and she's supposed to say, out, damn spot, out. So she's enacting something she no longer wants to remember through, the, through that unconscious sleepwalking. And I remember as a schoolboy, uh, there was a, a man uh, in those days, Francis Chichester. He was the first man to sail around the world single-handed. And he started in Britain, he ended in Britain. But he, um, he broke his journey. He did stop halfway at, in, in Sydney, in Australia and his wife flew out to join him. And so they were in the same room. And she reported that apparently some, some nights, Chichester was getting out of bed and he was trying to crawl up the wall and he was shouting, where's the halyard? Where's the halyard? And it would indicate that there was some kind of repression had gone on about all the fear he'd experienced in the course of his trip. So those are examples of, of repression and this kind of forgetting can take a very extreme form for people in very difficult situations under a great deal of stress. Uh, and it can take the form of personality disorder. You actually try to become somebody else because being who you are at that moment is just so difficult, so unbearable. So you have multiple personality disorder. You have something called fugue, where somebody runs away from their life and becomes somebody else. And it can happen that somebody is walking down a street in a town, a completely, a town they have no knowledge of, and they sort of come to themselves, they don't realize, they don't know who they are, they don't know where they are, and they don't know what they're doing. So usually people like that end up going to the police. So all these are examples of forgetting, and if you like, they are the modern explanations of why we forget. But um, 
There is also, if you go back to the suttas in, in, in our tradition, there are sometimes explanations there of why people forget. And there was a particular meeting between the Buddha and a Brahmin, um, a Brahmin man called Sangara, a Brahmin priest called Sangarava. So Sangarava comes to see the Buddha and he puts a question to him. He says, I'm not quite sure how he refers to the Buddha, but he said, probably Gotama. He says, how is it or why is it that there are some verses that recur, do not recur to the mind, even though one has recited them for a very long time or repeatedly, let alone the verses one hasn't recited. And yet on another occasion, uh, verses recur to the mind very easily, even though one hasn't recited them very much, let alone the ones that one has recited. So the Buddha kind of considers this and then he replies in terms of what we call the five hindrances. So for, for people not familiar with the meditation practices we teach here or, or with uh, Buddhism in general, the five hindrances that the Buddha was referring to are first of all sensual desire, you might call that lust, Secondly, ill will or aversion. Thirdly, sloth and torpor, dullness and drowsiness of mind. Fourthly, restlessness and worry, an inability for the mind to settle. And fifthly, doubt. These are what we call the five hindrances in our tradition. And so the Buddha replied in terms of these hindrances. He said, when a mind, when somebody's mind is obsessed with a hindrance or overwhelmed by a hindrance and they cannot see the escape from a hindrance that is when it's very difficult for them to remember things like verses but if the mind is clear of a hindrance if it has no longer overwhelmed or obsessed then the person will not have a problem remembering verses so that was his explanation of memory loss so we come to the question of um, is it always useful to remember? Is it something that we should always need to do or consider ourselves a failure if we can't remember? And there are certain indications that in fact forgetting things can be quite useful and even quite healthy. So the forgettery is not something we should necessarily be ashamed of. So <clears throat> I'd like to start by talking about a particular short story. This is actually a fictional thing, a fictional uh, story, but with some quite interesting insights. It's by a, an Argentinian writer called Jorge Luis Borges. And the, the story is called Funes the Memorious. And it's the story of a young man who's already quite bright. Uh, he's very able to recall the time. He never forgets names, but he has a fall from a horse and becomes a cripple. Nonetheless, he's not upset by this. He's delighted because his consciousness has changed. It has become crystal clear. And he can remember everything. He forgets nothing. And after this accident, as I say, he's a cripple, he's lying in a cot in a darkened room. And he just can remember everything. Every leaf on every tree, the nook and cranny of every house around where he lives. He can remember every incident that happened in his life. He can reconstruct whole days. He can remember languages. He learns about five languages in the course of this period. And 
you know, he's fully preoccupied with these memories. But because his mind is so full of detail, he can't think very easily. He can't sort of abstract or generalize. So there's so much detail in his mind, he finds it difficult to actually think. The other thing he finds difficult is going to sleep. So his mind's so full of these different details and all the things he remembers, he can't sleep very easily. So in order to sleep, he has to imagine that he's lying at the bottom of a river and sort of the current sweeping over him and he's on the rocks and then suddenly he can go to sleep that way. So the point with this man, Funes, is that he doesn't, he cannot any longer live in the present. He's so overwhelmed with these memories, so full of them, that he's actually living all the time in the past. So this is a fictional account, but it's an interesting idea about how memory may not always be so helpful. And coming back to the Buddha and his teachings, uh, there was a very famous incident where he was with a group of monks and they were in a, a grove of trees. The trees were called Singsapa trees, trees. And what the Buddha did was he said to the monks, he picked up a, a handful of leaves in his hand and he said, monks, which are more numerous? Uh, the leaves in my hand or the leaves overhead in the grove above us? So the monks, of course, replied, well, of course, the leaves overhead uh, uh, are far more numerous than the ones in your hand, Lord. So the Buddha said, well, the things that I have known and understood are as numerous as the leaves in the grove over our heads. Uh, but the things that I've taught you are equivalent to the leaves I'm holding in my hand. And he said, why do you think I've taught you this amount and not the whole, you know, the whole of my knowledge? He said, it's because th the things I have taught you are beneficial. Uh, they, are, they are support to the development of the holy life. They lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, peace, direct knowledge and enlightenment. And the other, the rest of the information is not useful to you. So what he's suggesting is certain things in terms of the practice that we follow in, in our tradition, certain things are useful, certain things are certainly helpful to remember, but many things are not. So there are many examples of unhelpful mem remembering. One particular one that <coughs> struck me is the incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. So people who've been through an extreme trauma are kind of marked with that trauma. And the trauma can arise, can arise through war, through torture, rape, abuse, uh, natural disaster. All these kinds of things can produce uh, PTSD. <clears throat> and very neutral harmless stimuli can set off a terrible reaction in someone suffering from PTSD. So something that wouldn't affect anybody else. So there were incidences after the Vietnam War of Vietnam vets, for example, in a factory, a noise happened, some kind of noise that other people, you know, they don't maybe like, they don't like, but they're not too affected by. And a Vietnam vet would leap into a vat of oil just to, out of terror. 
So I think that some, uh, some companies made their vets into health and safety officers. They were so sensitive to what was going on in the environment that they would immediately report anything going wrong. And in the case of my own family, my, my uh, father, who had been, as I say, in the RAF, and so he was flying over hostile territory and uh, various things were exploding around him, uh, anti-aircraft fire. So when it came to bonfire night, that's Guy Fawkes night in, in the UK, um, this was a terrible experience for him. All these explosions going off brought back these terrifying memories. And it wasn't that he would get terribly snappy, but he was very tense. You could see the stress. And all he would hope for was that the, uh, the noise would abate, that bonfire night would be over. So that's what I call, we, we call post-traumatic stress disorder. Those kinds of memories are definitely unhelpful. And another example I'd like to use is, um, I'd like to start a, with a quote. It's from a, a Spanish writer, a sage of the 17th century. His name was Balthazar Gracián. And he said something like this, the things that we remember best are the things which are better forgotten. The things that we remember best are the things which are better forgotten. And I think what he meant by that was that we, in human mind tends to hang on to grievances and grudges, uh, humiliations, insults, rudeness, or callousness, anything incites this negative feeling inside, we tend to dwell on these things and bring them back and think about them a great deal, stew over them. And of course, when we do that, it sets off a long chain of negative reactivity inside of us. So anger, hatred, uh, all kinds of negative emotions arise. And this goes on between individuals, so people can fight over things like uh, inheritance is, or children, houses, or what one person has done to the other, um, having experiencing a great deal of hatred. And I've even known people kind of fight over things like cutlery, something as simple and you know, innocuous as cutlery. So it goes on at the individual level, these memories, these grudges that we hold on to, and then it can also happen between families. So different wings of a family can have a grudge against each other and maybe not talk to each other for, for years. Or as in Shakespeare's play, Romeo and Juliet, you can get two families, the Montagues and the Capulets, always at war, always finding a way to score back at each other for previous uh, wrongdoings. And from the family level, it can go up to the level of mass sectarian hatred, we're familiar with this in Northern Ireland, uh, whether you're nationalist or unionist, uh, Catholic or Protestant, you belong to a kind of tribe and the other tribe is the enemy. And of course, holding on to many past memories in, in that uh, um, situation. And finally, we get up to the level of nations and each nation that you visit usually has some kind of other nation they regard as the enemy or traditional enemy and other nations they regard as friends. And there may well be uh, a lot of history, a memory, collective memory involved in that, wrongs done to a particular nation by another nation, and people hold on to that. 
So we have this capacity to hold on to very painful memories and to experience a lot of negativity and hatred as a result. And I think that that's what this man, Grathian, was referring to with that quote. So when we experience these kinds of emotions, uh, we call them asavas, outflows. Sometimes they're referred to as floods. Sometimes they're referred to as streams. They're one of the major obstacles in practice, how to cope with these outflows or streams. And in fact, there was a, a very interesting meeting between um, a student who came to see the Buddha um, and the Buddha. This student, by the name of, he was a Brahmin student by the name of Ajita, had come with a lot of his friends and they'd come a long, long way to put questions to the Buddha. And so Ajita, he, the Buddha says, go away, go, sorry, go ahead, ask the question. So Ajita stands there and he says something like this, he says, everywhere the streams are flowing, what is the barrier against the streams? Speak of the restraint of the streams. By what are the streams closed off? So this is the Buddha's reply to that. He says, Whatever streams there are in the world, mindfulness is the barrier against those streams. I speak of this as restraint of the streams. They are closed off by wisdom. So I'll just repeat that. Whatever streams there are in the world, mindfulness is the barrier against them. I speak of this as restraint of the streams. They are closed off by wisdom. So in that quote, the Buddha is introducing two key concepts in our practice, sati or mindfulness and panya wisdom. So now we're back to the second theme, which is mindfulness. And, you know, as, we, as I was saying earlier, it's this word sati in Pali, which um, T.W. Rhys-David, who was the founder of the Pali, uh, Pali Translation Society, he coined the word mindfulness or took the word mindfulness as the right translation for, for sati. And I remember in the early years uh, during which I encountered Buddhism first and first came to monasteries, that this word mindfulness was something one usually encountered in a Buddhist environment. So it could have been on a, uh, a retreat, a meditation retreat, it could be in a monastery, or it could be reading a book about Buddhist, Buddhism and meditation. This word mindfulness constantly coming up. And one didn't used to hear it outside of that context. At least I wasn't aware of it. <clears throat> so that was then. But now, uh, 30, 40 years on, everything has changed. So mindfulness is a very commonly used word in society generally now. And it can be used in a whole series of contexts. So for example, uh, people talk about, no, oh, the other day I saw an article in a, in a newspaper. The title of the article was Mindful Weaving. 
um, the in terms of the health and medicine that the, the <clears throat> doctors and practitioners trying to help people with stress and anxiety very much took on this idea of mindfulness. The most famous being John Kabat-Zinn uh, with his mindfulness-based stress reduction. There's also mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And I'm sure that many or some sports people use mindfulness probably to help them with their com competitiveness. Not only that, I've seen a, a, a report published by the civil service uh, one or two years ago, and in that report, uh, the people writing the report were praising the whole idea of mindfulness and trying to recommend that it be brought into the civil service so that it would obviously yield, they said it would yield benefits in terms of the workplace, people would be more at ease, they would work better, they would cooperate more and so forth. So mindfulness has come into so many different sectors of the society and now we know, uh, discover there are mindfulness teachers here, there and everywhere different kinds of mindfulness teachers. And of course, psychologists have taken to it as well, and they conduct experiments and do tests on people who are trying to be mindful. And even neuroscientists study the brain as people practice mindfulness. So it's a whole wealth of new information about, quotation marks, mindfulness. And the psychologists will write a book, they'll report on their findings, and they will define mindfulness in their terms. So there are now a, a whole spectrum of definitions of what mindfulness means. And the question remains, what is mindfulness? So this is why it's useful to go back to some of the earlier definitions and just to consider them. So this is a classic definition from the suttas. The case where a monk, a disciple of the noble one, is mindful. He's endowed with excellent proficiency in mindfulness, remembering and able to call to mind even things that were done and said long ago. So again, you see that ambiguity coming through. Is it present moment awareness or is it memory? In a sutta called The Debate of King Melinda, uh, which is part of our tradition, the king is having a discussion with a monk and he says to the monk, what is the characteristic mark of mindfulness? And the monk, Venerable Nagasena, says, noting and keeping in mind. Noting and keeping in mind. Venerable Analio, who's written the book on the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the main sutta about mindfulness, he's, he came up with this observation. Sati is mindful observation of phenomena or mere awareness of phenomena without straying into thoughts or associations. In 1981, Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, one of the most famous translators uh, of, from Pali to English in America, in 1981 he gave a series of lectures, he recorded a series of lectures on the essential teachings of the Buddha. This is a quote from his lecture. Samasati, that's right mindfulness, Samasati is clear awareness of what is happening in us and around us in successive moments of experience. It's a form of attention. Attention is ordinar ordinarily used to serve our biological and physiological needs. 
In other words, we note those things that serve our purposes. Samasati observes carefully and precisely what's happening in the moment. It aspires to a pure objectivity. So I came across another quote from a, a lay teacher of meditation by the name of Lynn Bousfield, and she wrote, the function of mindfulness is to stay present with whatever the moment of experience is, to stay present with curiosity and a soft and receptive interest. And at another point she says, using effort, focusing attention on the present moment without judgment. As soon as we're judging, we're not being mindful, seeing the process and its changing nature. And I found that kind of definition, as I say, in my early, earlier years, very helpful um, and very inspiring. Yes, a non-judgmental awareness. Sharon Salzberg, another famous teacher, cultivating a mirror-like mind, one that reflects things as they are, whether joy or sadness and so forth. Ajahn Sumato, the founder of this monastery, my first teacher, in the 1980s, he kept using the term choiceless awareness, choiceless awareness. He also used the following terms, an imminent reflection on the here and now, a continuous determination to turn to the present moment, a constant recollection or remembering of the here and now. Another lay teacher, Joseph Goldstein, mindfulness is a mental factor, it has the function of noting what the object is, of staying aware in the present moment. It's an awareness without clinging, condemning, or identifying. And then Ajahn Chah, mindfulness is knowing or presence of mind. What am I thinking right now? What am I doing? What am I carrying around with me? So these are all what I would regard as classic um, definitions of mindfulness. And yet, because the mindfulness now is a word used in so many different contexts, it has begun to be divorced from or pulled out from the context within which it was originally taught. So the Buddha taught mindfulness within a context. And often he provided it within a certain series of lists, mindfulness along with certain other qualities. And the problem is that if you start to divorce this concept from the context, within which it was offered originally, it's rather like if you've got a ring with a jewel set in the ring, you pull the jewel out of the ring and you put it into a different context. It's still a jewel, but uh, maybe it's not so easy to understand what the Buddha was teaching. And so, you know, mindfulness, some people talk about mindfulness of squirrels leaping from branch to branch. Uh, or the mindfulness of the cat as it waits for, for the mouse to emerge from the hole. And indeed, Ajahn Chah, I can just give you one quote from Ajahn Chah, wild animals have awareness. They have mindfulness as they stalk their prey and prepare to attack. Even the predator needs firm mindfulness to keep hold of the captured prey, however defiantly it struggles to escape death. This is one kind of mindfulness, for this reason, you must be able to distinguish between different kinds of mindfulness. So now I come to John Kabat-Zinn and his definition or what he says about mindfulness. And here is an excerpt from one of his books. Mindfulness stands on its own 
as a powerful vehicle for self-understanding and healing. In fact, one of its major strengths is that it is not dependent on any belief system or ideology, so that its benefits are therefore accessible for anyone to test for him or herself. And in another place he says, mindfulness is basically a particular way of paying attention. It's a way of looking into oneself in the spirit of self-inquiry and self-understanding. So the last thing I want to do is criticize what they call the mindfulness, the secular mindfulness movement. I'm sure it has done a lot of good, and particularly someone like John Kabat-Zinn working with uh, distressed people, uh, very difficult psychological situations, getting them to meditate and to be mindful will have, res will have helped a lot of people and uh, relieved a lot of suffering. But the problem is that when you pass someone a ball, they can run with it. And so if mindfulness is being used in many different contexts by different kinds of people, uh, then the meaning can change. So if we think about the wild animal motif uh, translated into the human realm, uh, maybe one can practice mindfulness of cracking a safe. So as you work to crack a safe, you have to be very aware, you're being very careful. And uh, the Hatton Garden jewel robbery of a few years ago, no doubt the thieves were being very mindful, if that's what we mean by mindfulness. Then you can have Sniper mindfulness. Uh, the sniper, when he takes aim to kill someone, has to be very, very careful and very aware of what he's doing. So, not so, man, not so many years ago, we had the situation in Sarajevo. It was surrounded by people in the hills taking aim at people in the streets of the city and killing them, including children. So, no doubt, those snipers, in their way, were being very mindful. And then finally we have the example of the bomb maker. So somebody's putting together a bomb that they're going to use to kill as many people as possible with. They're being very mindful as they construct the bomb. And then as they, you know, if they're a suicide bomber, they take it to the place where they're going to detonate it. They stand in the right place mindfully and then they detonate at the right moment. So all of this could be, I suppose, a sort of mindfulness. And indeed, in terms of speech, one could be defaming someone or tearing someone apart, uh, insulting someone mindfully, I suppose. Nevertheless, in terms of the Buddhist teaching, uh, this is all what we would regard as mitya sati, wrong mindfulness. What the Buddha taught was samasati, right mindfulness. And so it's useful just to explore for a brief while, what is the difference between samasati, right mindfulness, and other forms of mindfulness? And as I say, think, I think what really does count here is the context within which the Buddha offered this teaching. And the most, the clearest one for me, is the Noble Eightfold Path. So samasati, right mindfulness, is uh, the seventh factor on that path. There are eight factors in all. <clears throat> So it doesn't come on its own, it comes with a whole lot of other factors. And if we start to explore what those other factors are, then I think it helps to throw a light on what the Buddha meant by mindfulness. So just briefly I'll go into these other factors. So this uh, Noble Eightfold Path, the eight factors, are often divided into three different groups. 
The first group is called the wisdom group. The second one is the morality group. And the third one is the concentration group. So to go first to the wisdom group, the first two, the first one is right view or right understanding. Now, full-on right view is, is enormous, and I wouldn't try to talk about that, but as a minimum, right view presupposes some understanding of karma, that when we act intentionally by body, speech, or mind, there are results, and we inherit those results. So that's a, the very basis of right view, is karma has or brings results. And the second factor is right intention, now, right intention is about giving up thoughts of greed, ill will, and cruelty, and cultivating more thoughts of non-greed, non-ill will, non-cruelty. So very clearly, cruel actions or unkind actions would not fit within right mindfulness, sorry, right intention. Then we come to the second group, which is the morality group, and this concerns our overt behavior in the world. So the first factor in that, number three, the factor number three is right speech, giving up, telling lies, or uh, using harsh speech, or trying to be destructive in the way we use speech, spreading rumors about people, running people down behind their back, and so on. This is not right speech. And then beyond right speech, there is right action. So right action comprises, first of all, not to harm or to kill, so this is why sniper mindfulness could in no way fall, uh, you know, be connected with right action. Giving up killing and harming people and living beings, that's the first uh, aspect of right action. Um, not taking that which is not given, not to steal, is the second aspect. And the third aspect um, is, is that's running away from me at the moment, uh, sexual as the sexual aspect, which is not to get into misconduct. So being careful, being considerate, being restrained around sexual relationships, having some kind of moral guideline in, in the way we use sexuality. And then <coughs> we have the third group, which is right, sorry, the concentration group. And the first factor on that is right effort. Right effort is about making an effort to uh, not to continue unwholesome, unskillful lines of thought or emotion, uh, to, to begin to let go of them, and not, not to prevent the arising of new unwholesome thoughts, emotions and feelings, if we can. And on the other hand, to cultivate uh, wholesome, uh, skillful thoughts and emotions, and to maintain them, keep them going. So that's right effort. And it is the factor which immediately precedes right mindfulness. So when we see those six path factors that precede right mindfulness, remember all of these factors are supposed to work together. It's not like we do one, then we do another. But as we make progress along the path, these factors support and work with each other. If all these factors are taken into account, it becomes very evident what the Buddha meant by right mindfulness. So I'll go to some slightly different um, quotations or excerpts now. So from Venerable Tanisro has made a lot about this. Mindfulness is what remembers what's skillful and what is not. It also remembers what to do with skillful qualities. 
and unskillful qualities when they're present in the mind. Or if we go back to the debate of King Melinda, uh, the monk Nagasena says, as mindfulness springs up, the meditator notes the unwholesome and the wholesome, the blameless and the blameworthy, the insignificant and the important, dark and light qualities. And the king then asks him, how is keeping in mind a mark of mindfulness? So Venerable Nagasena replies, as mindfulness springs up in the mind, the meditator searches out the categories of good qualities and their opposites, thinking such are beneficial, such harmful. Thus does he make what is unwholesome in him disappear and maintain what is good. And finally, a quote from Analio. The task of sati, mindfulness, is to penetrate beyond the surface appearance, to lay bare the characteristics that the object shares with all conditioned phenomena. So there, I think, in discussing these different aspects or different versions of mindfulness, I've tried to imply that uh, mindfulness as taught in the Buddhist tradition may not be exactly what is being taught in secular society uh, because the Buddha was offering his version of mindfulness within a certain context. And um, it is very useful to go back to that context in order to really understand what he meant by, by mindfulness. So coming towards the end of the hour, uh, I'll try and just um, draw these things together, if I can. So first of all, to say that most teachers now in our tradition would say that just bare awareness or non-judgmental awareness is not mindfulness, that it's that somehow not correct they would say that for mindfulness to be really samasati, right mindfulness, it has to have an element of moral sensitivity, moral awareness to it, plus some hiri otapa, that is conscience or moral shame and moral dread. So long as those aspects are involved with mindfulness, then we can consider it to be right mindfulness. But divorced from those aspects, they would say, no, this is not what we can call mindfulness. So is there any way in which mindfulness can help memory? That's another question that came up in terms of the title. And um, just thinking about old age and memory loss and so on, um, what people regard as senility, or call senility, is one of the identifying factors of senility is that people live in the past. They can't live in the present moment. So if we have a practice of calling to mind the present moment, coming back into the present moment as often as we can, whether it's by body, speech or mind, then it seems to me this is quite a positive um, practice in terms of at least warding off senility if we're frightened of that developing in us. Now, um, we know that there are a number of reasons why memory slips away. One of them is non-activation. So the more we activate memories that are important to us, or which things that we do want to remember, by recalling them day after day after day, the more likely we are to be able to, to remember. We talked about context and memory. 
Well, one way we can help ourselves to remember is by establishing a good context for that memory to occur in. Now, traditionally, people would tie a knot in their handkerchief to remind them of something that they wanted to say or do. And nowadays, we use um, calendars and diaries and personal organizers. We put in notes and so on and remind ourselves of things we ought to be doing. But we can also think ahead in terms of the mental associations that we need in order to remember something. We can build up a mental context within which something can be remembered. And if we undertake that kind of activity, then we can support our own ability to remember. And I think also what emerges from the little I've read about this is that the more active we are in terms of our mind, uh, for example, if we've got um, hobbies, creative hobbies, or we do repairs, or anything active like this which, which calls upon certain memories, the more we pursue those hobbies and those interests, those memories stay alive. So that's a kind of active mindset, actively meditating, actively doing these creative tasks, as against the passive mindset of somebody sitting in front of a television, using, just clicking from one channel to another, passively consuming programs. That, to my mind, is the recipe for memory loss and you know, for, for, for decline of mental faculties. So these are just some, some hints as to how we might, if you like, keep our memory fresh. But at the same time, to remember that certain things, we can forget certain things, it's not a problem. Uh, we all forget, and the forgettery at times can be very useful. So on that note, I will stop the talk. And um, there are a few questions which have come through uh, by email, and I'll just uh, try and address the questions. <clears throat> so the first question is from um, a gentleman called Axel. And he writes, I think the title of his question is For the Benefit of the Many, For the Benefit of the Many. And the question goes as follows. What is wholesome, Venerable Sir? What is unwholesome? What is blamable? What is blameless? What should be cultivated? What should not be cultivated? What by my doing it will be long for my harm and suffering? Or what by my doing it will be long for my welfare and happiness? So, you know, I've been talking about the path, the path of practice, the path of development. And essentially what the Buddha is, is advising is that we follow that path, we adopt that path and we walk that path. So that means uh, going towards wholesome qualities or cultivating wholesome qualities and letting go of unwholesome ones. And the difference between them is that the unwholesome qualities are rooted in greed, hatred and delusion. If we go in the direction of greed, hatred and delusion, then we're highly likely to create more suffering, both for ourselves and for others. But the more we can let go of those behaviors rooted in those roots, then the, the more likely we are to be able to experience welfare and happiness. So we just have to really pay attention to what the Buddha taught. First of all, the practice of dana, so for those who are not very familiar with what dana means, it's generosity or giving. So the more we can offer to others and help people around us, the happier we will be. 
It's like, if you like, there's a shell around us. Maybe we don't want to break through that shell. But dana gives us an opportunity to break that shell in a positive way, go out from our, our own conditioning and offer help to someone else. So it might be material help. Uh, you know, people bring food to the monastery, for example, or it might be somebody who's in distress on the street. You offer them some money to get some food. It might be uh, other kinds of help, psychological help. Just by listening to somebody, you can offer help to them or by sharing something with somebody, one can often help them. So there are many ways of giving, uh, but the Buddha doesn't encourage us to give. He says this is what will open up the heart and create a, a happier mind state. So it's, giving is part of it. And then we come to the second aspect, which is the, what we call sila, or moral guidelines, ethical guidelines. And there, he is advising us to stay within a certain boundary, rather than breaking out from these ethical guidelines to actually accept them, accept a limit on our behavior. So that um, that limit is defined by for the householder by the five precepts. So not to kill, take life, obviously not human beings, but also if possible other living creatures, not to harm. You know, we may be tempted to, to hurt a small creature, but not to follow that impulse. The second of the precepts is about not taking that which isn't given. So if we go stealing or purloining, it might be from another individual, it might be from a workplace, it might be from a shop. But if we do that kind of thing, this is not for our welfare and happiness, he would advise. The third area is one of sexual misconduct. So again, this is an area which is tricky in the modern era, but basically paying attention to what we're doing and not exploiting other people and, and remaining faithful, if we can, in relationships. And the fourth area is speech, a very touchy area. So how are we speaking, how do we habitually speak to others? Is it done in a way of kindness or supportive speech? Or are we likely or customarily tearing people apart, running them down behind their backs, telling lies, or some of the other kinds of wrong speech that the Buddha recommends we, we let go of? And then the fifth aspect in terms of the precepts for the householder is alcohol and drugs. So as we know, uh, many people relax through drinking alcohol or through taking drugs. But what they don't seem to understand is that these chemical ways of relaxing and relieving stress produce their own effects. And so the, the advice within the path that we practice here, the tradition is give these things up because they're not going to help you. If you taking alcohol, taking drugs, you're highly likely to be breaking other precepts sooner or later. Uh, so this is something to, to, to give up. So that's the beginning of that. That's the, the sila for the householder. And then the third part of this is uh, mental cultivation or we talk about meditation, contemplation, reflection on our how we are, on our behavior and so forth. And undertaking a regular course, of, you know, regular sittings of meditation will help the mind to become more sensitive. And as we sensitize the mind and the heart, so it's much less likely that we're going to be doing unskillful and unwholesome things. We start to take into account the people around us much more. For example, it's not just sati, I was talking about sati, mindfulness, but sampajanya, all-round awareness of any particular situation and the implications of our own behavior. The more we can cultivate that, sati sampajanya, the less likely we are to create conditions that are blameworthy.
or uh, that increased suffering. So that's all I can recommend. Uh, dana, generosity, sila, morality, um, bhavana, mental cultivation, and another threesome, sila, samadhi, banya. So I'll move on now. It probably wasn't what you wanted to hear, but anyway. <laughs> I'll move on to the second question, and this is from Jonathan. So <clears throat> I'll read the question. What is forgettery's role in hate crimes? What is forgettery's role in hate crimes? For example, the homophobic murder of Matthew Shepard in 1998 and the death of George Floyd this year. What roles could Amaravati play in helping society mitigate hate crimes, homophobia and racism? So this is um, you know, coming from an activist point of view. What are we doing in terms of you know, this desperately unhappy and uh, tormented society and what are we going to do to help put it right? And I'll just give you some of the flavor of the Buddha's teachings in this area. He, basically what he was saying was, the effect that the Buddha created was, he set an example. He was an inspiring example to those around him. So he, he gave an example to, to the people of his own time and he, he educated them. He tried to teach them about the nature of reality to understand better that whatever they did had consequences. So we can go, as far as I know, the Buddha did not go around lecturing people, don't do this or don't do that in the sense of you've done something wrong, but he was actually trying to get them to understand the effect of their own behavior. So this is where I think Amravati has a role. It acts for some people as a refuge and also as a resource. In normal times, when we don't have this pandemic, people can come here, they can hear the teachings, they can talk to monks and nuns, they can borrow books or get materials, and they get the flavor of the Dhamma. And it's the Dhamma which ultimately can help society. The more people uh, understand the Dhamma and try to walk this path, which is a, a path of harmlessness and peace and tolerance, then the less likely we are to get these horrific events occurring. But the thing is, if you assume that all those people out there are wrong and you've got to put them right, and I have to say I was rather of these few myself in my earlier years, eventually the realization comes that no, before I try and put those people right, I've got to put this person right. Because this person is very far from perfect as well. So this is the kind of teaching that the Buddha offered. We work on ourselves and at the same time, we offer uh, teachings that may be useful to others. And the teaching has to be coming from a, a, a kind heart, a generous heart, a heart that means well for people. So we have to try to understand all the people involved in these ghastly events and the suffering they're coming from and the crazy mindsets they're coming from and offer them a way out through the teaching of the Dhamma and through practice. So that's the best uh, answer I can give you. Amravati, as it is now, is offering that kind of example. And in the end, if you want people to wake up from these nightmares, it's through this kind of example and this kind of teaching that you will really help them. 
because you can tell them off all you like, you can accuse them of this, that and the other and they won't listen. They have to be inspired and they have to be educated to grow out of these behaviours. So another question from Jonathan. We face severe social inequality highlighted by Black Lives Matter and those disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Did the Buddha encounter related issues and events in his own time? And assuming so, how did he guide lay people new to the faculties, sorry, how did he guide lay people new to the faculties of forgettery and remindfulness then, which may also be relevant to lay people today who are unfamiliar with Buddhism, the Eightfold Path, and who may be able to find strength from these. So yes, there was social inequality in the time of the Buddha. There was a caste system. Brahmins, Katyas, uh, merchants, and Shudras, at least a full basic caste system. And uh, people looked at, you know, from higher castes, looked down on people on the lower castes. Everyone was trying to assert their position. But the Buddha made it very clear that when somebody came into the Sangha and when he ordained as a monk, caste was not an issue. So again, he, rather than saying this is wrong or what you're doing is wrong, he set an example. And anyone who was ordained as a monk who came into the Sangha was, you know, it didn't matter what their background was, what mattered was what they did once they were in the robe. So he even, as we know, there was a famous incident, uh, a murderer was accepted into the Sangha, who eventually became an Arahant, who attained to enlightenment. So all kinds of backgrounds, high and low. And basically the Buddha said, I call him who is a Brahmin, I call him who is on the path to enlightenment, a Brahmin. Someone who's understood the truths, who's applying them in his life, who's walking the path successfully or in a, in a good direction, I call him a Brahmin. So he was changing uh, the definitions of the word, and in a wholesome direction. He did intervene. I mean, he wasn't getting involved in street protests or things like that, but uh, there were a number of occasions where the Buddha stepped out, if you like, and intervened. For example, when he saw people torturing a snake with a stick, he went to those people and he said, look, are you aware... Uh, do you like pleasure or do you like pain? And they would say things, oh, we like pleasures, Lord. He said, well, the more you do this kind of thing, torturing a snake with a, snake with a stick, you're likely to create unhappy results for yourself. So it was always a question of education and of drawing attention to cause and effect. And similarly with a group of boys who were fishing. He went up to them, they were in a pond, and they were torturing the fish or catching the fish. He said, boys, do you like pleasure and do you fear pain? Because this kind of activity will create pain for you later on. There was also the case where two tribes or two ethnic groups were about to go to war, the, the Sakyans and the Kolyans, over a water resource, over the river Rohini, and the use that the water would be put to. So the Buddha appeared on the battlefield and he shamed both sides into putting down their weapons. He asked them a simple question. He said, which is more valuable, the water in the river or human blood? And he, he got them to admit, yes, okay, well, human blood is more valuable. So they put down their weapons and started to negotiate instead of having a war. 
So in talking about forgettery, and this is something that happens to us. It's not actually something that normally we would encourage in terms of, of Buddhist practice. Mindfulness is what we encourage. And for people who are unfamiliar with Buddhism, we can talk about peacefulness, harmlessness, patience, tolerance, these kinds of qualities, because this is what the Buddha was advocating. And most people can understand those kinds of qualities and maybe respond to them. So we have to be able to be large enough in the heart to encompass people with many, many different kinds of problems. Uh, try to understand their, their situation and offer them a teaching that is relevant to their circumstances. Because not all the teachings are relevant to everybody. People come in different, from different karmic backgrounds, different situations in life and different levels of understanding. So the whole point to really help those people is we have to try to offer them a teaching that is meaningful to them. And in order for that to happen, generally, you have to get to know someone. So I don't think there's any you know, one, one uh, size fits all solution. But if people want to come, have an interest in, in coming to the monastery or hearing Dhamma, then these places are available. We're not going to go out and persuade people to come become Buddhists or to come to the monastery. But if, if they want to come, if they have an interest, then they can come. So the Buddha taught, uh, sorry, the Buddha talked about people with just a little dust in their eyes. And unfortunately, there will always be people with so much, their eyes are so caked with dust, they will never ever want to approach a monastery. We just have to accept that. But for people who have a little dust in their eyes, these places are available. The possibility of learning to meditate is available. And finally, there was a late question coming in, which I wasn't able to copy. I really messed this up. I can't find the text. I knew this would happen. Sorry, just finding the text. Thank you very much. So anyway, here's the question that came through after I um, made a copy of the questions. So it says, Dear Ajahn Damanando, I am approaching middle age, currently living by myself, and struggling with depression and anxiety, perhaps caused by childhood complex trauma, C-PTSD. Many days I can't get out of bed and feel very tired and have an emotional pain and fear in my chest. When I try to meditate, I often space out, so I have stopped. And I find it difficult to get myself to do basic tasks, such as washing up the dishes or laundry. And then the nub of the question is, can the faculties of forgettery and remindfulness help me at all? How can I develop these from scratch? Thank you. 
So it sounds as though whoever asked the question is a bit overwhelmed with depression and perhaps with constantly contemplating these these wounds or these traumas that they had to suffer earlier in life. And it's not surprising to me that just sitting alone in meditation doesn't really help. And what I would basically suggest is coming out from your room and mixing with other people, if you possibly can in any way, and getting support. By giving support to others, you can get support from them too. So is there anything that you can join in with by the way of, for example, it could be some charitable work or voluntary work, something like that, that enables you to come into contact with other people? And if you can do something to help them, in the end, that activity will help you. You ask about the faculties of forgettery and remindfulness. All I can say is if you find everyday tasks difficult, this is something where you can bring mindfulness to bear and you have to persuade yourself to get up out of bed and to do these things because that is the way you will change your mindset. The more you give in to the depression or or whatever it is that's holding you down, the more you will experience it. So you could use, for example, you could use a clock, an alarm clock to get you up and set an alarm clock to make sure that you do certain tasks. So you have to work on yourself to make sure that you wash the dishes and do the laundry and try to keep the flat clean. One thing I could suggest is possibly you have various negative voices inside that are constantly dragging you down. But when you do complete a task, when you do wash the dishes or get the laundry done or whatever it is you need to do, then give yourself a pat on the back. Tell yourself you've done that really well. Congratulate yourself. Allow yourself a space of positivity. Because I think this is what you most need in your life. And try to remember that whatever happened in your childhood, you're now an adult and you can make choices. As children, we're trapped in a situation and the parents or the circumstances call the tune. But as adults, we have that ability to make choices and we can make skillful choices or unskillful ones, wholesome choices or unwholesome. And it's for you to discover what for you are the right choices, the skillful choices. So the ideal solution will be to consign some of these very unfortunate memories to the forgettery. Stop dwelling on them if you possibly can. When you find your mind coming to those memories, stop it. Do something positive. But build up, uh, remind yourself, use mindfulness to build up a positive image of yourself. Every time you do something that's useful and good, even just for yourself, Congratulate yourself, give yourself praise. And try and get out and connect with other people, work with other people, help other people. That is the way out of this kind of depression. I don't believe by sitting alone and meditating that you can solve this problem at all. So anyway, that's all I can recommend without having met you. I wish you very well. I hope you, you make progress and try not to be 
sunk under this particular depression if you can help it. So those are the questions I'd like to say to everyone who has uh, been present and watched through the video, through the live streaming. Um, thank you very much for, for being with this talk uh, in the course of this afternoon. Um, and I do hope that uh, you can come back and watch further Sunday talks. There are two more uh, still to come. One by Ajahn Bodhi Pala next week. And then um, a final talk, by a, a joint talk by Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Chandasiri. And all of these talks will be worth watching or listening to. So I'd like to close by wishing you all well at this time of difficulty, COVID-19 and all that. Um, stay safe, stay mindful, but keep practicing. Goodbye for now. Sadhu, 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 Sadhu,